Episode of the Third Impact Anime Podcast. I am your host for this episode. My name is Sully, and I am joined today by Tobias of Sadness, <laughs> and we are also joined today by Bill of uh, Beautiful Still Frame Artwork. Kind of a longer title, but okay. And as you can maybe guess from the music that you just heard, or from our kitschy titles that we now have for ourselves, apparently, we'll be talking about the classic film La Sassiere Kanushimi no Belladonna, or as it's known in English, Belladonna of Sadness. But before we get started into that, uh, what have you guys been up to? We'll start with you, Tobias. What have you been watching, reading, playing, experiencing? Uh, life, every single day. But uh, we have, of course, just gotten back from our convention weekend, uh, so still processing Hamacon from uh, about a week back here. Uh, part of my uh, my post-con therapy, I got back playing a Nier Automata, kind of picking that back up after a bit of a pause, and still really enjoying that. It's a really great game, really atmospheric, very uh, very melancholic in a lot of a lot of places. Still not too far in that yet, so no spoilers yet, but uh, I'm enjoying it for what I've, what I've played. Uh, I've been wanting to play that game for a while, and just, I always it gets sidetracked by so many things, but it, that game looks really cool, and I love the idea of multiple endings. It's kind of a like an action RPG. It feels more action than RPG, not to say there's no RPG elements, but it's very easy to pick up and play and just you know grind a little bit if that's what you want. But it's really easy to get lost in the in like the scenery. It's like it's like a I've got a point uh, pretty early on in the game. It reminds me a little bit of like Dark Souls, where it's just very easy to take in the environment around you and kind of enjoy it that way. I know that Tori apparently said, or somebody said that they were at GameStop and like the, the guy on the GameStop TV pronounces it like automata and. That was a thing, and that's all I know about that game. Is like the white-haired, like gothic anime girl, and people call it Automata. <laughs> Automatopia. Automatopia. Near Automatopia. <laughs> that's her name. 
So when 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 she punches and stuff like the Batman, like Biff, Wham, Pals yeah. come out. That, yeah. That's what it's called. Yeah. That. <laughs> uh, I've been well. I mean, I watched this movie in preparation for the podcast. Uh, really behind uh, as is usual on watching the new seasonal stuff, but. I've got a couple shows, several shows that I'm really enjoying from that so far. Uh, Fire Force, of course, is is good. It's enjoyable. I, for some reason, still have not sat down with Vinland Saga yet, even though I know that's the the big thing that everyone likes. It's Uh, so good. Yeah, so that's what I've heard. Uh, I started, like, ironically watching How Heavy Are the Dumbbells You Lift, but I'm actually enjoying it. It's not as... It's 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 fan servicey, but not in the way that I thought it was going to be, and uh, it's it's actually pretty educational as far as you know working out and and uh, exercising and whatnot. So it's it's kind of uh, enjoyable in that in that regard. How about you, Bill? What have you been up to? Uh, probably watching too much anime. On top of the seasonal stuff that's going on right now, uh, especially Vanland Saga, which is my personal favorite. Partially because its opening theme song sounds like something during the new metal age, like Linkin Park would have probably performed the song okay. for Vinland Saga. So it just it makes me laugh every time. I've watched all the Pat Labor OVAs and uh, nice. highly enjoyed that. We will probably do a podcast on that in the near future. Probably will. But uh, that song is a, the the opening song for that those OVAs are is a jam and is so good. Uh, I watched Go Go Thirteen the Professional, which is uh, what if Canon Films made an anime that would be Go Go Thirteen the Professional uh, <laughs> is the way I would describe that movie. Uh, and I started watching the Galaxy Express three nine movie. Okay. Which I am uh, really enjoying because I can never really get into the TV series since that sh- the TV series is so long. But yeah. uh, so far, I've been enjoying the movie. I haven't finished it yet, uh, but I'm enjoying it. I was say you're pretty much doing the Austin method, where you watch 30 minutes and fall asleep. Nope, I don't fall asleep. That that makes me <laughs> not Austin. <laughs> I, I I actually stay awake during my movie, sir. Oh wow, sir. <laughs> And then games-wise, I don't know if you've heard of this game. It's kind of the Dark Souls of platformers. Dark Souls of platformers. Uh, Psychonauts. Uh, Psychonauts. Yep, hmm. I've been replaying that game for the one millionth time. Because I got it on my PlayStation for like 75 cents. And, <laughs> wow. so, and so I said, I, I bought this game once again. I need to play it again. To get me hyped for Psychonauts 2. And I've been trying to be more about the achievements, which I've never really been about that game. And I just love the small little details that they add to that game. Like there's a a cork board uh, that you can just click on a button and read all these little notes of dialogue that they made. Um, uh, What's his name? Harwitz, who's the voice of Raz, who also is the voice of Zim and Invader Zim. Uh, Read (laughs) with all the camp... Uh, camp drama that's happening which is kind of funny and just all the little uh, secrets they have throughout the game I, that's one of my favorite games of all time so yeah that's a good game uh, eventually we will get the sequel eventually Tim Schafer and his delays stop with the delays that Microsoft <laughs> money even though I hate that he took it if it delays the game once again I'm, I'm going to pull my hair out <laughs> 
so yeah, that's been my entertainment life as of late. So uh, how, how about yourself, Sully? What have you been engaging in lately? So I feel like a lot of the stuff I've been watching has weirdly kind of been bringing me back around to Belladonna because I've been watching um, a lot of French movies lately. <laughs> um, I, I started. I really got into a, a movie from 1970 called Podon by Jacques Demy, and this is sort of psychedelic uh, adaptation of the fairy tale Donkey Skin. And I watched an interview with the director, director Anna, Anna Biller, I can speak, um, who did the movie The Love Witch. And she's like, oh, this movie, Podon, really inspired me when I was making Love Witch. So I'm like, oh, well, I have to watch that now. And that's a movie which is uh, was made in 2016, but is styled to be like a 70s film. And it's about this woman who engages in witchcraft and, and Wiccan practices in order to... And she makes love spells and uses her sexuality. She's sort of this femme fatale type. Um, and then I, I watched Belladonna uh, yesterday, or rewatched it, and I feel like I've been just kind of circling around the sort of, like, feminist, colorful, psychedelic, fairy tale, sexy area for a while now, in just terms of the media I've been consuming. Other than that, now I've, I've been accepted into grad school. Woo! Nice. And now I have, uh, two weeks between when I, I just left my terrible retail job I've had since I've been at home. And the two weeks between leaving that and, and moving into my new apartment to get ready to go to class. And in that two weeks, I have a huge list of anime and stuff I, I'm supposed to watch. Um, I've marked some off my list. Um, I was meaning to rewatch Belladonna because I had uh, listened to a podcast, um, The Projection Booth, which is a film podcast I love. They did an episode on it. I was like, oh, I should rewatch it because it kind of inspired me too. So I, I got that down. Um, I've been watching Ava on Netflix, and I had to stop because uh, when I took my trip to San Diego um, and took those days off at work, they ramped up my hours as a response to that before I left, and so I had to pause. I'm on episode five now, and so probably tomorrow I will start uh, plugging back away at that because that's uh, something I probably should have been watching a long time ago. Is this your first time watching through Ava? So... Um, last summer I attempted to watch it and I forget why I stopped and it's always been something I've been hesitant to get into because I know that basically Ava is a very soul sucking show and that it leaves I, I respond very hev- emotionally to media that I watch so if I watch something very depressing and very existential I will probably feel that way afterwards and so I've always been kind of hesitant to get very into it yeah. Um, but with the with the new uh, subtitled ver- the new sub job on Netflix, which has had its own sort of controversial thing, and I've just decided I'm fine with the subtitles as they are. Personally, for me, I've done the research. I'm like these are fine for me, and I'm going to watch the sub version on Netflix just for convenience and because it's you know a brand new translation. I'm willing to go into it blind, um, having only seen like three episodes before. Um, so yeah, this is my first watch, and I'm okay. I'm kind of bracing myself for it. Uh, where are you in Ava currently? Uh, I know that he like left Nerve, and now it, it, I, the last scene I remember is when he's standing outside waiting Shinji, that is, okay. waiting for Misato to come back and pick him up, and he's like, "Yeah, I'm going to join Nerve again after I left." So that's that's the last scene I remember, um, very vividly. Yeah. Um, and I also planned to watch Banana Fish because everyone was talking about that. And um, I, I just participated in the Right Stuff sale. I had been watching Nadia and The Secret of Blue Water, and then I saw that the Blu-ray they did went down from $99 to 25 and I bought that. 
and I'm excited to 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 continue that with the Blu-ray. And I I got a manga at Comic Con called A Witch Hat Atelier, which I haven't started yet, but I'm going to start that tomorrow. And um, in the right stuff sale, I also ordered the new Urusei Yatsura manga. And um, a manga called Go For It Nakamura, which is a sort of gay... It's almost like if Rumiko Takahashi wrote a BL, that's what this would be, hmm. supposedly. It's done in, an, in an 80s throwback style, and it's about this gay high school student who has a crush on one of his classmates, and he's trying to like deal with that. And I've heard people like go on and on about how cute and funny it is, so I'm like, I'll give it a shot. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing. I actually have this list next to me of stuff to watch in the next two weeks. And there is uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, there's probably about 15 things on here that consist of both, like, anime and, like, anime movies and just movies in general, and then books, and then comics, and then regular books to read. And I'm like, there's no way in two weeks I'm going to get all this done. So this is probably going to be an ongoing list. <laughs> and that's not even counting games I want to play, because I really want to play Mario Maker 2. Yeah, uh, I, I, sh- I should have a list, but... uh. It's just going to make me more depressed to uh, keep looking at that mm. list. And, you know, and, and just are. recently today I found the Utena musical up on YouTube subtitles and I added that to my two watch list. Will I get to it? <laughs> God only knows. Oh, and I did watch, I did binge Tuka and Bernie, Birdie on Netflix after like the day I found out it got cancelled. I'm like, well let me see what the hubbub is and now I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of good things about that too. Uh, it's very, very surreal, very funny. I actually think it's better than BoJack, but that's just my, my, my hot take for the evening. I will have to check that out because I like surrealism and I like BoJack Horseman. Well, I've learned if people have a long backlog of stuff, you just have to be annoying and just poke them of just like, hey, hey, <laughs> hey, you need to watch this, Tobias. You need to watch Fujikomine. Do it. What was this show? This uh, Lupin Woman Fujiko something? You won't. You gotta keep telling me to watch. What's it called? Uh, oh yes, I believe her name is is Fujiko Mine yeah. or something like that. <laughs> I, I think that's it. I'm not My quite Fujiko. sure. My little Fujiko. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the lady named Fujiko Mine. <laughs> so I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not really sure. There's this. There's this show that Bill wants me to watch, and he said the theme song is nothing but the main character's name repeated over and over again. You'd think I would remember it. Um, someone asked me once, how do you get through like a, a long backlog? And I was like, you know, it's the same answer that I give people who say, how do I find time to write? Or how do I find time to do something? It's, you just gotta make time. <laughs> you know what? Like, there's always this answer, like, oh, well, you make a list and you set priorities. It's like, no, you just gotta make time. <laughs> That's literally the only thing, is you have to, like, it's so easy nowadays because we have this, like, just this buffet of of media to watch and things to watch, and I think we, we, and I say this is someone who's just as bad, like, when I was working in retail, every time I came home, I turned on, like, it was either Cheers, Frasier, Nailed It, or The Golden Girls, and it's like, (laughs) you know what? I'm not really even watching it. I'm just going to turn it on and then, like, literally roll over in bed the other way and just have it play on the back while I try to go to sleep. And I think a lot of us have that sort of tendency to go for comfort shows or shows that we've seen a thousand times or fandoms we're in that we don't really have to, you know, engage ourselves with new media. And the the answer is, well, you just have to make time where you, you 
sit up and you watch something and maybe you have to do the awesome method where you watch it for 30 minutes and you fall asleep you wake up and try to keep going push it <laughs> you don't need to sleep it's gotta push it it's it's media calisthenics <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna be the quote of the episode <laughs> so with that do we want to get into belladonna of sadness week's episode again we'll be discussing belladonna of sadness uh, before we continue i do want to give a quick warning here uh, just due to the very nature of, of this movie uh, we're going to be discussing some heavy themes uh, including sexual violence so just keep that in mind here uh, you know if you need to skip this episode you certainly can do so i don't think you're gonna hurt any of our feelings but uh, just be advised that from this point on uh, we're going to be discussing some heavy heavy material for sure Okay, and with that, we are going to jump right into Belladonna of Sadness, and we'll start out with some sort of background material. Um, the full title, as I said at the top, is La Sorciere, Kaneshimi no Belladonna. Um, it's inspired by the book La Sorciere by Jules Mechelet. Um, it was translated into English as Satanism and Witchcraft, and it's a sort of romantic history on <clears throat> uh, witchcraft in the Middle Ages and how it was sort of a way for women to fight back against a patriarchal society. Uh, ultimately, though, he's like, and so men should, you know, guide women so they don't do this. So it's kind of a, not a very feminist book. It's an interesting book to read. You can actually find the full text in English and in French online if you're so inclined. I, I read it personally, just out of my own curiosity. Um, and there was an excerpt from the book, because again, this was the one that inspired the film, that I wanted to read here because I felt like it kind of neatly summed up uh, sort of the plot and the theme of Belladonna of Sadness very easily, and uh, this is from the chapter Satan the, he the Healer. Um, the sorceress was running a terrible risk. Nobody at the time had suspicion that applied externally or taken in very small doses, poisons are remedies. All the plants which were confounded together under the name of witches' herbs were supposed ministers of death. Found in a woman's hands, they would have led her to being adjudged a, a poisoner or a fabricator of accursed spells. A blind mob, as cruel as it was timid, might at any morning stone her to death or force her to undergo the ordeal by water or noyade. Or worst, and most dreadful fate of all, they might drag her with ropes to the church square where the clergy would make a pious festival of it and edify the people by burning her at the stake. So... You know, fun stuff if you're into reading about witches. Um, it was part of the Anime-Rama trilogy, which, uh, if any of you watched the discotheque panel from from Otakon, which was great, and I loved it, um, you'll know that they're actually releasing Cleopatra, which was the second of these films. So the first was A Thousand One Nights, Cleopatra, and The Milladon of Sadness. Um, these movies were made by Mushi Production, who was uh, founded by... Um, Osama Tezuka, the guy who made Astro Boy, you know, godfather of manga, the guy, kind of one of the reasons we're all here, basically. Yeah. And the whole reason this trilogy of films was made was basically, and in Japan at the time, there was the Pinku Ega, the pink film craze, and pink film is basically, 
it's hard to describe it. It kind of defies d- description in some ways. It's sort of a combination of porn and exploitation film and women's revenge films, uh, rape revenge films, uh, gangster movies. They're, they're these sort of the grindhouse films of Japan. They're very quick. They're short movies, usually like an hour or so long. Um, and they were hugely popular. Like, men and women went to see them. People went on dates seeing pink movies. Uh, these sort of softcore, grindhouse exploitation violence movies. And they were really kind of also, like, pushing kind of the artistic sensibilities of Japanese cinema. Like, you have actual, like, the sort of, the sort of intelligentsia of Japanese cinema talking about pink film seriously. Um, and seeing it as sort of part of the, the, the nouvelle vogue of, of film there and so Tezuka saw this and he saw these movies in the theater he's like well how can we do this with animation and so he did the the anime Rama trilogy starting with A Thousand and One Nights which people always compare these to Fritz the Cat um I don't think Belladonna is anything like Fritz the Cat but uh they predated it they actually predated I think by three months or three years something like that um so these are kind of like the the er example of kind of Combining psychedelia and eroticism and uh, controversial themes in animation. And I will say that A Thousand and One Nights is not that great. Um, Cleopatra is... I mean, it's about aliens trying to become Cleopatra's lover, so, I mean, they're kind of, it's kind of out there, and it's psychedelic and weird, and it's enjoyable for that reason. Um, but then you have Belladonna of Sadness, which I think is actually, like, art. Like, it is not... You know, camp. It's not uh, exploitation necessarily. I don't think of it as a as a as a porn film. I think it's actual, honest to god art. You, when you say things like uh, exploitation, it makes me think of something that is again very campy, very uh, you know set in that genre. But when we look at at this, there are a lot of very specific stylistic elements. Very, very. Um, it shows it, it. How do I say this? It is very obviously a movie made in the seventies, in a lot of ways. But I agree that it doesn't feel very exploitation esque. I, I feel like it has some of the tropes of of pink film and of exploitation film, but it kind of does them in a, in a more intellectual and artistic way. Like I mean, yeah, it does have the elements of a rape revenge film, but it doesn't have that sort of male gaziness necessarily that, mm. that something like, um, um, last house on the left or what have you might have as an American example or, um, and this is a real film. I'm not joking. There's a, there's a pink film that has gotten some critical attention called zoom in rape apartments um, which has elements of sort of being a Japanese rape revenge film, and you don't. There's always this element of of the the lurid male gaze, and that's not really here. Like everything in this film that is sexual and violent is absolutely terrifying and horrifying, and yet you can't look away. And it's not done with the sort of oh the men in the audience we have to keep them titillated. It's done with this we you the audience member are Jean, you are Belladonna, and you, we want you to feel as she feels, and I think that sort of empathy that the, the direction of this movie has is what separates it from something like Last House on the Left in many ways, where even if you could give a, a feminist interpretation, you cannot deny that there is a very implicit and very noticeable 
male gaze there. Yeah, no, I, I would say, I feel like there's something, it, it's hard to describe, but something that's very similar to the gaze here, but I feel like it's embodied more in the fact that the villagers are just so hesitant to go with the flow. Uh, they are there to support our characters when they are, you know, benefiting from it. But they are also there to, you know, watch as bad things happen to these characters. And I guess that feels kind of uh, gazy in a way, in a very metaphorical way. But you're right; it's not very lurid. It's not. Uh, it, it's not for a particular audience. I feel like, but it, it feels like I feel like there's that element there. That thematically it feels similar to like the male gaze. It's interesting that you mentioned the the, the, the villagers and how they kind of hesitantly go with things. I mean, even in, in the excerpt I read, you know, a blind mob, as cruel as it was, timid. Mm-hmm. I mean, that describes the villagers in this film, and the villagers in many ways kind of feel like the audience. They feel like they're supposed yeah. to be, you know, we are supposed to feel what Jean feels, but I feel like at the same time, the, the the villagers are sort of us reacting to that world at the same time. They're sort of wit- these silent witnesses to everything that happened. But, you know, we're getting really into this, but Bill, this was your very first time seeing this film, and you went into it completely blind. And first, I'm sorry, I thought you knew what it was about, but you, you went... So what was your reaction? Uh, I hated the movie at first. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. It's just because I didn't expect three or four rape scenes throughout the movie, and you are totally right. This, these I would argue, after reflecting on it, these rape scenes are there for a purpose. They're not exploitative that you would see in like a canon films movie or in other exploitation type movies. But it was just it, it this it wasn't what I was expecting going in. So it was just kind of like. It was kind of like a seeing a slow mo car crash of just like you can't look away and you're just watching it. And it, I, I'm gonna say like it was hard. It was hard watching this movie because, the, like you were saying, Sully, there's no real titillation in any of these scenes. It's just you are seeing it. I would say mostly somewhat from a distance, but also from Belladonna's perspective, um, like. There's this one scene where her vagina is just being ripped apart in one sequence, and you're just and just seeing that just this like ugh, it's just, it's painful. And I would say I'm glad we did this trigger warning before we started the conversation because I think going into this movie you need to know what is happening because I think going in cold really affected my viewpoint on the movie until I had time to reflect on it. And I will say this is a, a difficult movie to watch for a variety of reasons. One, being the content of the film itself. And two, um, it's not a traditionally animated film. Like, if you're expecting, like, an on-the-ones, like, like Akira or, like, a Disney movie or, like, anything that you might be used to with Tezuka, um, it, it's not. It's mostly, uh, it's a lot of static images and pan shots and fadeaways and... Uh, very limited animation done artistically. Um, so if you're looking for something that's like a, a very strict animated narrative, you're not going to get it here. But I, those static images are gorgeous. Like the opening, oh, yeah. the opening sequence of um, our two main characters, them getting married, just everyone gathered around them. And when they go to the Lord's court, 
just wow, just the the character designs and how everyone looks. It's like a uh, an oil painting, just very beautiful. Uh, I, I've uh, seen people compare the the artwork in this movie to Klimt, who's famous for his his piece The Kiss and um, sort of the 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 Art Nouveau of France of the of the twenties, and then um, it's it's sort of like if you took Art Nouveau and Klimt. And and Yoshitaka Amano and Chuck Jones and said, you know, let them all have a jam session. I feel like this movie would be the result. And I mean, think of like it's literally every frame of painting in its most sort of you know you know taking that to the extreme. I think it's a. I, I would love an art book or even just imagine if the the cells or the the paintings used for this film are still extant. Like imagine like a a gallery exhibition of these. Like it would be breathtaking. I would I would get that art book for sure. Insane. Same, yeah, and I think I've, I mean, kind of what you said. I this time, I this is the second time I've seen the movie, maybe the third. And I did pay attention to the animation itself. And there's, I mean, at least the very first half of the movie, there's very limited animation. It really is just sort of these pan and scan shots of these gorgeous, like, watercolor illustrations. That uh, you're right, and all the uh, you know production work, production art we'll see from this. Like if you just you know Google Belladonna of Sadness and look at the screenshots, you it's pretty much what you're going to get out of this. The animation itself, for those parts that are animated, uh, it definitely seems like something animated in the 70s. The animation looks a little dated. There's a part you know later in the movie where it it varies, obviously something from the 70s with a very schoolhouse rock aesthetic to it <laughs> uh which is very different than the rest of the movie of course but uh yeah like i i completely agree that the strength of the aesthetics here is going to be in these still frames uh actually um this just kind of got me thinking of maybe it's a narrative technique throughout the movie because thinking about it when it's just the still uh static frames everything's kind of peaceful it's calm, it's quiet. When there's animation going on, it's either something frantic is going on, either uh, Belladonna interacting with the villagers, uh, carrying them with their bubonic plague, or the sexual violence that occurs to her, or her interactions with the devil. The imagery in those are, are done so well. I mean, uh, you know, not to not to dwell on a very unpleasant topic, but I think how the, the, the assault scenes are done, because her body is literally torn from from the groin and you see this red abscess representing the tear and then it begins to throb like a like an organ and it's so uncomfortable and so visceral and you can feel it and then you know even the design of the devil it's very obvious he's very obviously a, a penis a phallus um and when he appears and like his first appearance when he starts out this sort of little imp phallus imp he appears in like this white smoke. The very to me, it's like this looks like semen. It looks like he's appearing in a cloud of semen, and then he, you know, the imagery is very. It's not subtle necessarily, but it's done um, very painstakingly in a sort of you know we know what we're doing, but we're going to do it well. Exactly, um, and I think another thing to point out uh, for those of you who haven't maybe watched it yet for some reason that a lot of these scenes uh, almost feel like they're straight out of a picture book. There's a lot of these plain white backgrounds with these scenes, uh, you know, drawn and you know, illustrated over them. There's a lot of juxtaposition in some of the outlines. So there's one scene in particular that stands out in my mind where we see, uh, you know, Belladonna's face 
but like her hair and her bangs, they're just white. They're just white outline, or rather, the they're like black outlined, but you don't have to see the hair, the hair color. And there's a lot of stylistic choices like that that I think really make this movie pop visually in a lot of those still frames. And when you bring up it being a storybook, it kind of makes me think of, you know, the very beginning of the film starts with the Jean and Jean, and they they have, uh, they have very similar sounding names in French, but uh, and her name isn't Belladonna, but we that's a good way. We'll probably refer to her as such just for clarification in the audio. Um, but when her and Jean are getting married, um, you know, it's got this sort of happy song, and all the villagers there. It feels like. It feels like, and then they lived happily ever after. Well, what's ever after is not actually that happy. It feels like we've kind of arrived at the end of the fairy tale, and now this is where the the tragedy begins. Um, And our narrator kind of sets it up in that way, which I found very interesting. It is kind of like, you know, this is what happens at the end of the storybook that you don't, you know, you're not privy to. This is the dark side of the fairy tale. Yeah, there's there's no fairies here. It's just all medieval awfulness. I mean, they they kind of invoke the feeling of the the fair folk in a way. I mean, look at the 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 royal court. Like the the lord, he looks like he has these horrific bone protrusions in his head, and the 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 woman looks like a this sort of you know evil queen from outer space, and all of their their courtiers are like these. You know, they have these bizarre body proportions and weird hair colors. They feel kind of like these this this band of freaks that are in charge of all the people. And then all the villagers themselves, you know, they they kind of look like cupie dolls. Like they have like little round blush cheek things and they look kind of they have little beady eyes and look so dumb, like little Santa elves or something. And then the only like real human characters are 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 Belladonna and Jean. They're the only ones who look like humans consistently throughout the movie. And the other thing, too, is kind of going on the end of the fairy tale. It's a very dark fairy tale of everyone in the movie, except for Belladonna, are very um, selfish of just, if it's if it helps us, we are, it's great, but, <laughs> like the villagers, the villagers throughout the movie are very passive, like they don't, when, uh, when Belladonna is sexually assaulted, they don't, they don't try and help. Or when John is inside their house and Belladonna is banging down the door, please, please let me in. They're coming after me. And he is too much in a broken state within his own mind to do anything. Uh, right. And I and also just the members of the court are very um, vain of what these... The villagers are following Belladonna to... Um, to get rid of, we need to get rid of her. It must be witchcraft, uh, or the queen also being very petty. Of, she can't be more beautiful than I. Uh, so it's a very, it can, it's a very dark uh, fairy tale. I think at this point we maybe need to give a little bit of the plot because we've we've kind of described things, <laughs> um, and people who have not seen this movie are very confused. So, the basic plot of Belladonna of Sadness is, as I said, it begins with the wedding of Jean and Jean, who have very similar names but they're different in French. And they are in the French medieval countryside, and they're they're married. And so the the lord of the land, who is only ever referred to as my lord, um, he requires that all people who are married give him a tax of ten cows. And uh, her husband says they only have one, and he says, "Well, the the other price is if your wife is a virgin, and and she is, then you must give her to me." And then. It, 
the lady of the court even says, you know, and after he has his way, everyone else in the court can have her as well. And that gets us into our first assault scene. And she uh, is sort of broken by this, and her husband is despondent now. And one night, while she's sort of crying and coming to terms with what has happened to her, uh, this phallic imp, this devil comes to her and offers her great power, saying, I am part of you, um, and enchants her spinning wheel, and if there's any other, you know, if there are any greater symbology or, you know, symbol of fairy tales in the spinning wheel, I can't think of one, um, and her thread that she makes, she, she does, like, she spins, uh, fetches this great price, and they're able to pay their taxes, and because of that, uh, her husband is then made into a tax man, and basically the the film goes is that she becomes more entwined with the devil and witchcraft, and she she becomes entwined with the devil and witchcraft the more that she sort of faces this patriarchal oppression, this sexual oppression. The more that she you know does this, the more power she gains through the magic of this devil who is giving her through sex in many ways. Um, and finally, she becomes this witch. Her husband loses his hand, um, and she sort of runs off and becomes a witch, and she gives people potions that can induce abortions, can can remove pain. Um, she, she sort of becomes a healer type, and because this threatens the power of the Lord, uh, he tries to take her out, and eventually she's taken into the, into the town square, and she's burned as a witch. And it's implied that her her sacrifice is not in vain, that her spirit will you know, inhabit women of France, and when the revolution comes, you know, centuries later, it's the spirit of the belladonna of sadness that will carry them forward, because the, one of the last lines of the film is is this text that says, and at the, at the very front lines of the revolution, there were the women. Um, and that's sort of in a nutshell the plot. There are some more intricacies there, but uh, to understand what we're going to be talking about, that's pretty much all you need to know. I would argue that this film is not, it's not, there is a plot, but it's more of a it's more character of what's happening to Belladonna and her journey from becoming just a a young married woman to becoming a sorceress, uh, a Wiccan, a witch, however you like to describe it, and just just the journey she goes through and, and the pain that she takes. So overall, I don't view this movie as a plot-heavy narrative. Although I do hate that ending of. And they somehow tie it to the French Revolution because I think it takes away from the, that fairy tale element. I think it's, it's very, it was very jarring to me when you're like, huh? So her, her death helps give people the power to fight the patriarchy during the French Revolution? Okay. I, I kind of hated that part. <laughs> it made it feel a little weird because nobody really wins the movie nobody really i guess comes out okay everybody suffers to some way uh even the bad guys at the end of it so i guess the general thing was you know this is yeah life was really really shitty for women back then you know any sort of power you obtained was taken away by you know the institutions uh, around you whether it be you know, these feudal lords or just men in general and you know this where we would see things turn around in France a little bit later, I guess, I, I guess is a way to make it a little happier because <laughs> there's there's no joy in this movie up until that point. I mean, it's not Belladonna of sunshine and rainbows. <laughs> um, 
one thing I find interesting is just the more the more the more she is degraded, the more humiliation and pain and suffering she's put through, the more power she, powerful she becomes. Um, mm. And it's just interesting how this this film sort of uses how it views sex. And most of the time, when you see a movie, it's sex good or sex bad. And here it feels like sex is simply people can use it to hurt you people can you can use it as a tool you can use it as a tool for pleasure it feels like it's kind of exploring all of the avenues that that sex can take instead of simply saying like you know this isn't like a lifetime movie where you know there's a sexual assault and then there's no sex is always bad and you it's sort of bemoaned is constantly bad or it's not like a a sort of very hippie film where it's like all sex is good all the time it feels like it actually takes like a a nuanced, critical look at how sex is a tool in society, and I find it very interesting. The first time the devil comes to her, one, he's in the the shape of this small phallus. Two, he says, "You know, I am a part of you. I am you. You summon me because I am a representation of your feelings." And it's like the very first, you know, sort of pleasant sex scene in the film, if you can call it that, because there are no real sex scenes here. They're very metaphorical and very surreal and psychedelic. There's no actual, like, like penetration or anything in the traditional sense, but the very first sort of pleasant erotic scene that we have is him saying, I am a part of you, I am doing this of your own will, and it's sort of this, is this, a, is this an implication for masturbation? Is this, is this phallus, is it like a, a dildo thing? Which also goes into the witchcraft, the idea of, like, witchcraft is also representing feminine sexuality, uh, the freedom of feminine sexuality, you know, the, the story of the, the witch broom being something that came from that, and it, it's such a complicated thing because you start with that with the devil and that, and then the devil seems to assault her later, and there, it's like, there's always this feeling of, you know, as empowered as she is by this, there's always a price that some will be paying down the line. Well, I think the the greater message is sex is the ultimate form of power of who is controlling the sex. Like throughout the movie, the people who hold the power are the people who are controlling the the um sexual intercourse. For example, when when they don't have enough to pay for the cat, when they don't have enough to give to the Lord, the Lord says, "Okay, then I get to have sex with the, your your wife." And that is a form of power of I am able to dominate over you and control who you get to have sex with. Or when the devil comes in, of just like, in order for you to have this power, you must give yourself to me, mentally and sexually. And I think that's that that's kind of the theme that stuck with me throughout the movie, is sex and who controls um, that sexual interaction is the ultimate form of, form of power. I find it interesting you bring up when, she, when the devil says that, but at the same time, I think either in that scene or another one, he says, I do not want those poor souls who throw themselves at me. You know, there's something about you that your your defiance or your your independence that that I want, and I found that to be a very fascinating line, kind of you know, in relation to everything else in the movie. It, it's just really, it's just a really complicated. I feel like you could watch this movie three times and find new ways of interpreting it and and new ways of looking at it because this this is probably one of the first times in a while I've sat down and watched this you know start to finish. And I just, I just kept writing down, like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What, what? It's like I'm trying to figure out this riddle. Of the, this, this movie is, you know, posing me. Um, 
and and so much of it seems to be in relation to the church too you know so much of the traditional witch's sabbath that that has been outlined through things like the the malleus maleficarum or through you know la sorciere the book that this this film was inspired by uh, tends to take the 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 sacraments of christianity of catholicism the traditional traditions that's that's a nazi moron the the, the rights of that religion and sort of sexualizing them and subverting them like you know they the the act of kissing the ring of the pope for witches it said that to become a witch you have to kiss the ass of satan and that sounds funny to us but it was a sexual subversion of of the tradition that was supposedly part of black magic women's sexuality was inherently linked to their their rebuking of Christ and their gaining power from demonic forces. And in this film, it's weird because she she sometimes seems to be embracing Satan as this sort of lover figure, and then sometimes it feels like he's just another male that is harming her. So even through witchcraft, this thing that's positioned as a way of women subverting male authority and finding freedom, if if in this film we, we position witchcraft as... Re- is receiving powers from Satan and Satan is represented as a male figure and literally as a phallic figure you know is she truly free by witchcraft if ultimately her power comes again from man and another thing to sort of add to that is there's not in most of the scenes with the devil here he doesn't really force her there's only the one scene where he appears and you know, is laying on top of her but when she, you know, actually vocalizes that she didn't want it, he was like, okay, that's fine. I'll, I'll leave and I'll come back when you do. So there is a brief scene where it could turn into something, but it really doesn't. And it, it and later in the the, the section, the, the scene later where she finally does embrace it, like that is entirely her choice. She, you know, decides to do that. And then we get this really weird scene where they melt together and there are real life video bubbles in the background and then schoolhouse rock shows up for some reason but i, I like that 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 is entirely uh consensual on that point so that point she the 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 devil has won and that she has decided that yes this is what she wants it's interesting how we sort of frame her her I don't want to use the term partners, especially since some of the sex scenes are, you know, non-consensual, but the people who engage in sex with her, you know, we have the Lord who who violates her, and then we have her husband, Jean, who we have one sort of tender love scene between them at the end, but it's it feels like it's the sort the sort of marital, the sort of sterile affection they have. I mean, it does feel very like much like a fairy tale, very childish and like, oh yeah, we're together and it's all sunshine and rainbows and it's just it's just sort of like the breeding pair must go off unfettered and then you have her with with the devil and it's like this is the actual lover that she has this person who like actually makes love to her doesn't violate her have this sort of sterile you know sort of disney-esque look at it it's like out of all the people that she has relations with why is why is satan the most satisfying for both sort of psychologically and physically I mean, I feel like that's that's kind of answered through the film itself. Uh, at the very beginning, they are these very generic fairy tale lovers. Uh, they're you know, very chaste, very white, very pure. And then when things start going down, that's when they lose their innocence. And it's, I, I feel like we talked earlier about male gaze, but there is a lot of commentary on male entitlement at the beginning and throughout the film as well. While uh, John. I mean, he's honestly more ruined by the initial rape than she is. 
not to say that it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, traumatic on her end, but he was, I felt like he was definitely more impacted, you know, than she was in the beginning. You know what I think that is? I think that's because he loses his form of power or his power within that relationship. Oh, exactly. I mean, that that comes down to, like, that male entitlement. So the first act is, of course, the lore that takes what is, you know, quote-unquote his. There's Jean that fills the well. I mean, you know, she's ruined, and that, that there goes my life. Oh, woe is me for, you know, having done the situation done to me, which, of course, you know, is wrong. It wasn't him to begin with. But uh, we, we see that kind of throughout. It's this male entitlement. And uh, even later, when the, the whole tax collector scene, where John just sort of stumbles into this job that pays well, and then when the Lord goes off, and suddenly they need money, you know, it's it's uh, everyone feels entitled to the Belladonna's skill, and uh, what was it, weaving? I think uh, mm-hmm. uh, the skill she picks up. Uh, however, everyone feels entitled to her wealth, even the, uh, the even the queen or the the baroness or whatever whatever her actual title is feels entitled to that but of course that all goes away when the lord comes back and suddenly they can find cause to get rid of the belladonna and even the end everyone is so happy to partake of the belladonna skill and uh the skill in the witch's herbs but lo and behold when suddenly uh everyone turns against her they are not remiss about doing that they are very quick to either burn her or allow her to get burned so I feel like that's, I mean, we see it though. Again, not to say that you know any of these characters are actually suffering more than she is, because she certainly does. But she certainly has a stronger fortitude than any of them do. And historically, that was pretty much how witches or or the the healer woman existed in many in many sort of pre modern societies. I mean. Uh, at least for Ray Bradbury, one of the uh, main ideas of where the word witch comes from is it comes from wits, the person who knows something. And these these women who knew how to heal or knew these sort of folk remedies were kind of in this weird limbo between, you know, people seek my services, but they don't respect me because we they've been taught to fear me. You know, it's, it's similar to what, what, what Jean faces when she becomes this healer. You know, we have the old woman... Who, who comes and says, you know, I like to have sex with my husband, and if I don't want children, she gives me this, this herb that allows me to, that works as a sort of contraceptive, a sort of a, a, an after pill. And I know it's sinful, but I want to do it anyway. And John sort of acts as this, this sort of, you know, I can place my sin onto her. I did this, but it was through her, so it's all her fault. This sort of, and it kind of is the thing that allows the villagers to sort of sit by quietly when she's being executed, at least until then, they they sort of rise up, and then the 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 knights keep them back. It's it, it's easy to vilify them, but in a way, they're kind of stuck between you know she could empower them, but what to what extent are they actually able to carry out any sort of you know revolution? It's like when they burn the Belladonna, her husband John, he like takes one of the the, the flaming logs off the fire and tosses it at the Baron. And they kill him. They throw a spear through him, and the the villagers rise up and they go to attack. And then they're met with these with the the spears of the of the knights. And so this is sort of like you know, 
I kind of view the villagers as these sort of dumb children that she kind of has to take care of, and, you know, they kind of are capricious, but that's only because they're stuck between her trying to sort of liberate them and the the the, the aristocracy trying to keep them down. It's You know, even one of the ladies' pages comes to her for help, and it's this sort of, you know, I think you're disgusting, but I need your help. Um, well, and not, there's, there's a there's a political me- metaphor metaphor there of the the villagers, aka the people, would rather stay in complacency because going and forming a rebellion causes unrest, gets rid of stability, and it gets rid of comfort and safety. And so, by allowing the Belladonna to be burned, they they can still be safe and go about their boring lives even if they are under a repressive ruler and to just kind of go back uh through the you know the, the the sexual history of the of the show uh, i feel like one thing that she does uncover is just how um how fake these structures of power are how they're pretty much mandated by uh, you know sex sexual intercourse to some degree whether it's you know the the, the baron taking you know what he feels is his his uh, whether it's Jean sort of you know giving up on uh, the Belladonna because she's tainted, I think what what she learns at the end after um, you know embracing Satan is that it doesn't really matter, and it's really a matter of who how you feel about it. So when she is more than happy to welcome any of the villagers to accept her remedies, and then John shows up, I do think it's kind of a mix of embracing him as as you know an ex-lover as someone she love loves or used to love and not letting the jealousy get a hold of her letting her letting them just have that moment you know as actual lovers for that one time and that it's even if it's more there for comforting him as it is for you know her enjoying herself i feel like she's realized that all that crap that held her back to begin with is not really anything except what you make of it and it's funny that, that her husband, John, he kind of, uh... The very first sort of witchcraft that she has is selling the thread. It's mentioned by the narrator that, you know, she could sell at any price she wanted and no one would haggle. Like, apparently the thread has some sort of enchantment that allows it to be sold, to be made wonderfully and be sold, you know, without question. And because of that, they're able to pay their taxes and the, the Baron makes John the the tax man and he kind of you know lives off of he lives off of her labor basically and then the next enchantment she has where she becomes this healer he becomes a drunk you know he's the it's funny the first time it happens he's you know taking power from her labor and the second time when she's more in control of the sort of fruits of her magic he's he's emasculated and he has no ability to fend for himself and then he becomes a weakened person again and you know, even though she never sort of banishes him or sort of casts him out, you know, we in the audience, I'm like, why do you like him? You know, he's such a weak man that he can't handle you, you know, living your own life. And he's, you know, he's become this drunk now that you're powerful. You know, it's it's like, I don't know why she kind of comes back to him in the end. Um, even though she does do a little bit of flirting, there's after the Black Plague happens, there's the man that finds her in this cave and she sort of offers him this this magical flower by way of you know she sort of tries to kiss him with the potion in her mouth and flirts with him it's just kind of funny to me that 
all the men in this movie are so easily threatened by women's power. And then the two sort of women in the movie, you know, Jean, the Belladonna, and the, the Baroness, they're the two that kind of have the most... They have the strictest competition. The actual Baron, after he assaults her the first time, he goes off to war. And then a lot of the conflict in the narrative comes from the Baroness and Jean facing off against each other now that she has taken over more power than her and the people revere her more and they fear her more. So it's even sort of going into this like w- competition between women in a patriarchal society. Maintaining of getting whatever scrap he can at the table yeah. that, that women were allowed to have. I feel like as much as we, we frame the, the Baron as, as the main villain, and he is a villain to be sure, he's in the story so little compared to the lady who is egging him on through most of this and, you know, agreeing with him, and then she sort of takes a more direct violence against Jean than any other character outside of a sexual assault. Like, in terms of a narrative, like, I'm trying to undo you, she she's the one that seems to have the most out for her. It seems the Baron is really just in for the carnal pleasures of, of taking her body for his own. Yeah, he's just a brute force, like the brute force of the patriarchy. Whereas the his wife seemed a little more of a human villain in that regard. It reminds me a bit of sort of, you know, talking about like the Handmaid's Tale. You have the women in that society who are going, who, who kind of, they, I don't know if you could say agree, but they they support this, this oppressive patriarchal dystopia and they do it for their own selfish needs, whatever those might be. And I feel like that kind of character is... The, the sort of character that the Baroness is. It's that she, you know, she does not see this as I should protect her for being a woman or my being a woman, I understand the sort of thing they're trying to do to her. She's not, you know, when the, when the assault happens the first time, the first scene in the movie, she does not say, no, don't do this, this is wrong, or even turn a blind eye to it. No, she encourages, and even she's the one, she is the one that says, when he is done, that is when the servants can have their turn. Like, she's encouraging it. And I feel like that, that speaks volumes as to where she's positioned in this story and where, you know, women are placed in relation to each other in this movie. Uh, you said that earlier, how they are pretty much rivals. And it's, it's very easy for individual women to embrace the patriarchy in that regard because they can still benefit from it. Not that that benefits people as a whole, but just their particular situation at that moment. So we we've we've done a lot of really heavy talking here. This is a, this is a very this is a very uh, kino episode of Third Impact yeah. Anime. There goes our outline. We pretty much just skipped over half of it. Yeah. Uh, before we maybe we should talk a little bit about the cast here. Um, yeah. Let's. It's, we I think we kind of skimmed over our discussion questions. We can go in a little more in depth because I do want to explore some. But I guess if we're taking a a bit of a break here uh, to let everything sink in. Uh, let's go over first the cast list. So we have uh, playing the devil uh, or Satan or the little phallic imp, as Sully's new favorite phrase. Uh, we have uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, who is also in Sumiyaki no Rojin in Tales of Princess Kaguya, the Ghibli film. Uh, he also looks like was Lord Hiratore Ichimonji uh, in Ran and Unosuke in Yojimbo. Now, which Yojimbo was that? Uh, Bill, I think you put those lists together. Um, yeah, that's that's. I think that's the the live action. Yeah, uh, Kurosawa. The, yeah, these Ron and Yojimbo are the two mm. live action Akira Kurosawa movies. He was in uh, five Akira Kurosawa movies, actually. 
Okay. So. He's a very well-known character actor in Japan, isn't he? Just going through his cast list, it seems that he was very popular among a lot of the top okay. Japanese live-action directors at the time. Okay, so got experience in both live-action and voice actor work. Uh, moving along, we have Aiko Nagayama as uh, Jean, uh, the Belladonna, as we are calling her for this episode to make things a little easier. Uh, we have Katsutaka Ito as Jean, or just John. Uh, I mean, basically in French it is just John. It's John and Jean, basically. Yeah, John, John and Jean. That's a, that's a good way to... I think that's how I my internal monologue was voicing it uh, along with the movie. We have Masaya Takachasi as the Lord, the Baron, the King, whatever title. I don't think he's officially titled in the movie. Uh, at least mm. the subtitles I watched, but he's just the, the head honcho, the head noble. And uh, his wife is played by Shigaku Shimegi. Yeah. Uh, these actors and actresses don't really have a whole lot of history, not that we as an American audience would really be familiar with, but they all were in a number of you know, live-action Japanese works as well. These were mostly live-action actors, so these weren't voice actors, really. Right. Yeah, and again, these this was made in the '70s, so there wasn't quite the you know the base of voice actors and actresses that we have now. So that that is understandable, I would say. But moving right along into the production staff, we mentioned earlier that this is you know a series of films by Mushi Production, Osama Tezuka Studio. Now, uh, after working on the first two films, Tezuka did leave before completing Belladonna, as he wanted to focus more on his manga work rather than the you know, the animation, which I think is a solid choice. This doesn't feel very much like a Tezuka work, and I think uh, a lot of his manga is, is fairly timeless. Uh, he deserves a lot of the attention that he still gets, so I think that was a smart choice on his part. But as far as the actual staff members for this movie, we have the director is Eiichi Yamamoto. Previously, Octo worked on Tezuka's work Astro Boy, as well as Space Battleship Yamato, uh, the Cleopatra film that directly preceded this, and Kimbo with the White Lion, another Mushi production uh, work. Co-writer on this, uh, alongside Yamamoto-san, is Yoshituki Fukuda who also worked on Akira, uh, Cat's Eye, and Wicked City. We have for the animation director, Gisaburo Sugi, who, uh, apart from working on Cleopatra previously, also worked on the 60s Dororo adaptation. Again, another Tezuka adaptation. Uh, also directed, what is this, Bill? One of the uh, Lupin movies or yes, specials? Uh, this is one of the specials, Lupin the Third. Uh, the Twilight Gemini, which is the only reason why this one's notable is because it, there's a sex scene between Fujiko and Lupin, which is overblown. Is he just as is he just as psychedelic as <laughs> Belladonna? Do they start teaching us about like how conjunctions work, or like how I'm just a bill and I'm sitting on Capitol Hill? Uh, that would make it actually interesting and make that movie actually memorable. <laughs> Uh, yeah, oh. it's 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 really bad. And moving along, we have uh, Yukiya Chita. Uh, worked on in-between animation for this film, but it also worked on key animation for Night on the Galactic Railroad and uh, Unico and the Island of Magic and also Space Adventure Cobra, which, uh, speaking of discotheque announcements, this is a very timely podcast. Uh, we did just get a announcement that the movie, Space Adventure Cobra movie, is going to be the first uh, anime in 4K UHD format over here in the states. Just you know, just recently, Discotech is making history in a whole different regard. 
Yep, Disc mm-hmm. Attack is basically just, as we've discussed, the, the criterion of anime at this point. <laughs> uh, we're, we're unabashedly here at Third Impact Anime Team Discotech all the way. Yep. Uh, yeah, if you haven't, for whatever reason, had a chance to check out the Discotech announcements from yesterday, it's uh, just as surprising as they usually are. So feel free to check that out. I think we would all recommend following them on social media. And just following them in general. Uh, Discotech Day, every Otacon is is a national holiday for Otaku. <laughs> One other note about this movie, um, just kind of in my research, is unfortunately this movie bankrupt uh, Mushi Productions and kind of sh- uh, shut down the studio because it did not do so well uh, oh, in Japan yes. and it did not get any international play. Uh, until much later. Oh, yikes. So, uh, Mushi Productions did come back, although in a different form. along here let's kind of move into our general discussion outline Uh, so the first question i think we've pretty much outlined at the beginning of the podcast what did you think about the general art style and aesthetic i know we talked about the watercolor illustrations and like the the actual panning the pan and scan throughout is there anything else you guys wanted to add to that if you are really into kind of 60s psychedelia and kind of pop art you'll probably love the art style of this movie I would love to have a time machine somehow take this movie back, do a screening of it in San Francisco in the midst of the 60s revolution and see how an audience would take to this movie because I think they would love it from an artistic perspective. Personally, I think it's beautiful. Like I I went into it and I knew that the animation was limited in places and I think that's part of its charm. I think that gives it that, that storybook feel we were talking about and I know some people... You know, especially if they maybe have watched this after, like, Cleopatra or A Thousand and One Nights, they would be turned off. But I think that they knew what they were doing and that it's well-directed. I, it's just beautiful. Like, I cannot imagine, like, I watched this on the big TV in, in our living room and just watching it restored and, and on that big high definition. It was just gorgeous. It was absolutely beautiful. Um... And I can only imagine how it must look in a theater. Like, it must be breathtaking to see it on the big screen in the dark. It, I, I cannot recommend the visuals in this film enough. And I am into that, that psychedelic, surrealist, pop art aesthetic, so it was right up my street. I, I absolutely love the Schoolhouse Rock theme in particular. It's just so <laughs> wacky. It's, it's so weird and so unlike the rest of the movie. We talk about the storybook look and feel of the of the general movie up until that point, but it's just so such a disconnect to have that happen, and then uh, not even a few minutes after that, where they're having that you know, orgy from the villagers, it's 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 like a '70s version of the club scene from Devilman Crybaby, 
Let me reiterate. There's a scene where a man's penis turns into a into a woodpecker and begins to peck at his butt. Yeah. <laughs> and the other one where like the guy's genitals become a giraffe. And another guy is like defecating fish. Just fish are just popping out of his butt constantly. <laughs> I think there's one woman her her breasts turn into eels or something. Yeah. Yeah, all I could think about is Double Man Crybaby and like how how similar that was just you know thirty forty years earlier. Okay, uh, the one th- I think when we're kind of stuck on this, I I want to give my one complaint of the movie. I feel like the pacing is a little a little off. Uh, I hear a lot of people, and I think I've I've heard both you guys mention. Uh, I think Sully, I think, sort of implied this. Maybe not Bell, that you will like watch this movie in chunks rather than watching it all in one go. Uh, that was kind of how I watched it initially. And there are parts of this movie where I feel like there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of, all right, here's this terrible thing that happens to her. Here's how she gets back. And here's how the the power responds. And there's like three loops of this that it makes me feel like there's a lot of false endings. And the movie keeps going. You know, it's, but it's funny. The runtime for this movie is only 88 minutes. Yeah, and I, I, there's that too, and it was so like I I felt like I was watching a two and a half hour Lord of the Rings movie. It I don't want to say it dragged, and sure there were a lot of visually stunning elements. I'm, I'm glad nothing was cut out of it, but it did still I don't know this like it felt like it felt like it dragged. Well, is that just me or no? I think that's just that's the pacing at the time. Like it, it, trying to go back to a movie that's seventies or earlier, it it can be hard to go back to. So I think it's just I think at the time audiences had more of a patience where now we're so used to stuff that's more fast and connected because uh, we're always moving on to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing so we need something that's pretty fast paced whereas yeah. those psychedelic scenes they they they're not short like they last no. two or three minutes each and I think that kind of adds to the feeling of length when it's. You know, a scene that doesn't really have a direct point to it, it's just there for you to visually enjoy it. Um, I think that can make it feel longer, but I was just kind of like, wash it all over me, just, you know, throw it at me, movie. And, like, even, (laughs) I mean, even the scene with with the Black Death, with these sort of ghoulish black faces that sort of float in and out and look over the meme, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to enjoy it and just, like take in the craft of the animation I think if you go in with that mindset of you know I'm watching this and when I get to these scenes I'm going to enjoy it like one would enjoy in a fine dinner you're going to you're going to get your, your money's worth I think I've mentioned this before but my only real complaint with the movie is just I, I think that the ending of and Belladonna's death inspired the French Revolution I think is kind of a bunch of uh, BS because one the villagers don't really show that through the movie. Two, it takes away from the fairy tale element, and I think it was them trying to like, oh crap, this movie is extremely depressing. We should put on some, we should add a kind of a hopeful ending uh, that felt tacked on. So I kind of wish they had just ended at her uh, Belladonna's death. You, you know what it made that would have made the movie a lot better. You know how those like uh, those like late '80s Rat Pack style movies, where it's like, where are they now? And <laughs> right before the credits plays, it shows each character and like what kind of goofy thing they grew up to do or whatever. That's what it should have been, Bill. Well, Bella Doc, she's uh, dead. 
uh, the villagers, they're, they're dead. Uh, John, he, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> played uh, played under a very peppy '80s uh, t- <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it would have been like the Breakfast Club. It would have been called the the the, the, the Belladonna Club. And then Belladonna writes a letter to. And we learned while I was burning at the stake. <laughs> I'm, I'm surprised Sully hasn't yelled at us yet. Oh no, I'm letting the, the art happen. <laughs> Kino, absolute Kino. Absolute Kino. <laughs> the next point, I think we covered a lot in the discussion about Satan and uh, just the general morality. But when we look at like Japanese mythology and how they look at demons or yokai, they're not strictly black and white good and evil like they are in more Christian stories mm. uh, that we we see here. There's a lot of you know Christian elements, a lot of that religious background and in, in this story in particular, and you know in the original story this is based on. So I feel like even though we've got uh, you know Gene the Belladonna as dealing with the devil throughout, I don't feel like we see a lot of this corruption. Uh, symbolism throughout it it feels like she's a very sympathetic character by the end uh did you guys sort of get that or did you feel that there was some corruption there that sort of you know doomed her and covered her character i'm going to say as someone who has never really had a very close relationship with western religion uh for, for reasons that might be obvious to some people I never had a moment where I thought, oh, this is a corrupt character. No, I was completely on her side, and completely on Satan's side for for the entire film. Like, except for the points where I was like, okay, Satan, you can back off. She said no. Um, (laughs) Other than that, like, for the most part, I'm like, like, you know what? I was like, well, why aren't you selling your soul already? Like, he's offering you power. I'm not religious, personally, and I don't believe necessarily in Wicca or anything, but I always... In stories, I love witches. I love reading about witchcraft. I love reading stories about witches. Be they like the Wizard of Oz style, where they're just, you know, pointy hats and cackling, or like the more realistic, or the fairy tale style. So, like, I... My sympathy always lies with the witch, almost 100% of the time. So there was never a point for me where I was like, oh yeah, she she's fallen, she's given up. I'm like, no, you're fighting back. You're you're reclaiming your power. You are you are embracing your feminine sexuality. You are owning your body. You are owning your abilities. You are learned. You are powerful. And I was, that scene, like one visual from the movie I love is that scene where I think it's when the lady first sees her in her full witch form. And she looks like this black beast where she has this regal long neck and the horns and her body sort of turns from an animal to a robe and she like glides up and she just looks down. I was like, that was my favorite visual moment in the film because it's like, that is how I feel Belladonna, how Jean actually is, this powerful sorceress who is, you know, you can destroy my body, but my spirit will live on in the bodies of every woman that you try to oppress. Feminism. <laughs> uh, I think for me, I grew up in a Christian family. It, it's, it was hard to get away from my view on heaven and hell and the Christianity lens through it. Now, I would I would agree that the devil is not necessarily evil, but the idea of you're losing your purity, quote unquote, and the devil is unleashing this power and this wildness to you. I could see the the kind of the uh, Christian theming through that. It's not exactly 
Christian, but that's that's kind of how I interpreted it. I mean, and, and honestly, I, I wasn't exactly referring to this as being like how you view it through your own religious lens, although I think adding that did add something to the conversation. I, I guess that when we, we're used to these kinds of stories in a Western framework, very inspired by, uh, some might even say tainted by, very conservative Christian mindset. Uh, I feel like usually when they get these stories, the, the the devil is usually their corrupter, and usually by the end, the tempted person falls down to the depths of hell or is corrupted. But uh, I feel like in this movie, we didn't see that. Uh, I was kind of expecting near the end for there to be a catch, for uh, Jean to do something despicable and maybe murder everybody or, or do something very evil, but she doesn't. Uh, even at the end, all she wants to do is to help her village, the same village that's kicked her to the curb several times. I think an interesting story to compare this to is is Marlowe's Dr. Faustus, where you know the, the dialogue between Faustus and Mephistopheles in that play, and then the the dialogue between the devil and Jean here, uh, they were they were kind of they kind of circled in some similar ways, and then in Dr. Faustus. He uses the magic that the devil gives him to do very selfish, stupid things, like to play pranks on kings and queens and to, like, curry their favor. And in the end, he's like, oh, no, I I made a mistake, and he gets carted off to hell. And here, it's... She uses her magic to help other people, and she's punished, but she doesn't really... Like, she dies physically, but there's this implication that her spirit lives on in some some way. And it's interesting that... You know, the gender relation, one, a male magician versus a female magician, and two, just, you know, the Western notion of, you know, if you deal with the magic of Satanism versus this, I mean, not only because it was from Japan, but look at the time period, the 70s, when when Wicca and witchcraft and Satanism were coming back into vogue, you know, sort of rebellious subculture, I think... If it were made in any other time, not not even just any other place, it would be different. So I think it was kind of a perfect storm. Exactly. Yeah, I feel like there's, uh, like we mentioned earlier, that the 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 pink film, the pink Oega, is already kind of meant to be disruptive, uh, and and it's in just its execution. But to see this sort of almost Japanese take on these like these demons and not being as strictly evil like we see them. I think is an interesting juxtaposition and a very interesting take on uh, this kind of story. Mm. Okay, so uh, lastly, the thing I think we haven't really covered a whole lot is uh, what do we think about the eroticism of the film as a whole? Do you think we they enhanced the overall presentation, or were they just kind of you know cheesy, maybe not fan servicey, but you know cheesy and unnecessary? I think it's an erotically charged film. I don't think it's a pornographic film. I don't even necessarily think it's an erotic film because all of the the sexuality is so caked in metaphor and 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 surrealism that it's not necessarily. But there is this sort of because there's this sex positive vibe in it in places. Like again, for a movie that has two rape scenes. It, there is also this sex positivity to it that when you watch it, I think you feel you feel sexy watching it. That's such a weird thing to say, but like you feel this sort of like yes, be liberated, be you know, be a libertine, be a hedonist, you know, enjoy your body, enjoy you know the power, you know, that comes through sexuality. And at the same time, it's like you you feel this while you're watching you know a schoolhouse rock vignette. You know, it's it's very weird. I think it's a movie like I said that makes you feel sexual 
not like not like oh yeah I watched this movie and I want to go bang but it gives you this sort of yeah. body positivity this feeling of you know this the, it's okay it sort of feels like it lifts this curtain of shame in places I think we feel and in that I think it, it succeeds in being an erotic film it's a film that yeah. that says it is okay to embrace to embrace the erotic but it's not necessarily there's no there at no point. Is, is the Belladonna working on her spells and potions and the pizza man come for a special delivery? <laughs> it's more of a, you know, embracing sexuality through metaphor. And I think that is what makes it so powerful. I slightly have to disagree with you on that, with the sex positive thing. I think Belladonna comes to embrace her sexuality after going through the sexual trauma that she does. And I think that can be empowering. But I would say... The sex positive stuff doesn't really happen until the very end of the movie. For most of most of the movie, it's not sex positive. Uh, it, it's not really until the, the final third. But as for the eroticism, I would say it's part of the art aesthetic. And I think there's nothing that, as Sully was saying, of just like it's trying to turn you on. I think the the closest to that is just. Belladonna embracing her sexuality when she becomes a uh, a witch, and just the just accepting of her body and of her powers. Right, uh, I think it's kind of a mix. Uh, I, I agree that it's not a pornographic film and that it's not meant to get you going, but I feel like there's enough sexual energy throughout that. I mean, you have to, you kind of have to pick up on, and there's sure there's a lot of. It's a very messy film in that regard. I feel like when we look at its sex overall, it's a very messy thing to begin with. You've got a very, very tough scenes. Uh, you've got a lot of very sexually positive scenes. There's a lot of just individual things, uh, you know, not as part of the the entire, you know, violent scenes as a whole that can be titillating. Uh, I don't feel, again, that it's not there to just you know, to go ahead and get you off, but I feel like there's bits of energy that you can pick up on that sort of add to... When you watch this movie, you get this sort of feeling. Like, it, it, the movie is almost inviting you. Just, it's almost inviting yeah. you to embrace your it, your body and your, your sexuality. It's not, it's, not, it's not showing porn, and it's not saying, go out and, you know, go out and bang someone. It's saying, you know, just, yeah. just be free and just enjoy it and don't feel guilt and shame and don't you know, there's this power inside of you that you can harness for your own satisfaction. It's this sort of... It's casting a spell, one might say. <laughs> no, that's that's a good way to put it. There's a lot of little bits there that, that do kind of enrapture one, but it never jumps fully overboard into pornographic content. Just It's funny, just kind of compared to modern anime, where I think sex is seen as very juvenile... Like, look at these big breasts, and also the constant male gaze that happens um, throughout modern anime, whereas this is very much a messy but mature and very adult look at sexuality, which I don't think we we rarely get um, in modern anime today. You know, Tobias, when you wrote these discussion questions, you say, do you feel like something like Belladonna could be made in the current industry? And my answer is no. And to piggyback off what Bill says, I mean... I feel like how the anime industry right now is handling sexuality is like he's a juvenile. It's it's very much only for for straight men. It's it's very 
very infantile and very sort of like I think about like on Twitter people saying oh lewd and I'm like well that's what it is it's lewd it's not even like tasteful it's so it's so pathetic and kind of sad and I think this movie has this sort of like higher minded look at it and it's like you know this movie you know I see the sort of anime industry and even the culture of it now saying oh sex is dirty and naughty he 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 and then I see this movie saying sex is beautiful and powerful and something that you know, is is almost like magic. And I think that's the sort of difference. And just where the industry is now, just I could not see a movie like this being made. It would not cater to the otaku tastes. And it's an art movie before it is anything. And I also could see it not being made in maybe the other con- another country's animated, you know, oeuvre. I could not see that happening. I could not see any American studio making a film like this. I, I agree completely. I would be very surprised if we were to get something like this. But just sort of, I guess, uh, since I think we definitely all agree that a more subtly erotic film like this, uh, you know, in certain ways, not to say that there's any subtlety in some of the scenes, but something that's not outright pornographic, uh, while we all agree that that would definitely not fit in the industry today, do we think that something as arty as this film is uh, would be made today in general? Whether sexual or not? I think there are beautiful anime films that that have come out in the last few years. I think of like Your Name and Silent Voice, but those are still... I don't think of those as art house. I think they are just very well done animated films. I think, unfortunately, there's not much that we are privy to, because I am sure there there are plenty of art house Japanese films, and plenty of art house animated Japanese films even, that are being made that just do not reach the western shores like we would like them to, and that maybe we would have to be, you know, in the know in that in that sort of world to be to be privy to them. So um, whether or not there are, I will say that are these films being made and are they being brought to the U.S. either by official channels such as you know distributors or licensors, or even by fans who are sub fan subbing them anyway? No, I would say right now there isn't. I would disagree to some degree i think it's rare i think there is some art house that's happening like uh tobias you turned me on to kaiba i would say its aesthetic is not typical anime animation it's very much its own style and it's not a it's not a typical anime story uh that's set in a high school it's a very look it's a dystopian uh view of the world and the in the interpretation of, of memory and who you actually are and um there is a bit of use of sex that happen in that in that show yeah. um yeah no, i would agree yeah in episode two there's there is a flat out sex scene that is uh i guess if taken literally can be a little <laughs> a little raunchy but it doesn't really feel as pornographic as it could be were given a very photorealistic art style yeah, or or stuff that's made from um, 4C in their experimental work. So I think art house anime does exist. I think it's just very rare because the 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 the, the money's not there as more general shonen anime would be. So at that point, you mentioned Kaiba, and I completely agree with Kaiba. But Bill, I'm gonna make you feel old now. Uh, Kaiba is over ten years old. Oh. Uh, <laughs> well, that's still relatively young-ish. Yeah, to... right, that is true. Uh, when I think of things like, uh, you know, it came out in a, this sort of new anime movie renaissance, you know, in the post-Your Name world, 
I think those are very uh, realism-based uh, high school dramas. Mm. Seems to be a lot of it. Things like Your Name and Silent Voice, which can be just filled as much drama as Belladonna, but is very different aesthetically. I'm glad that Yuasa is getting the love he deserves, but we are getting stuff that's closer to Your Name rather than Kaiba with his more recent stuff. This might be a tangent, but how do you, how does like um, Devilman Crybaby relate to Belladonna of Sadness? Well, uh, I mean, I would say that there's a lot of intense sexual imagery throughout that show. I feel like there's a lot of uh, rough sexual elements. So the, the Crybaby is in some ways, I mean, it's very erotic overall, but a lot of the power dynamics between the main characters and even how uh, the main character, uh, Rio, right? Is- no, Akira, is, Akira is devil man and, and Rio is, is gay Satan. Yeah, so there there is a lot of power struggle between you know the, the crybaby and gay Satan there, where uh, 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 Akira is very much this innocent soul that is constantly seeing all this bad stuff happen, and he gets a lot of like brief touches of sexuality. Uh, of course, you know when he turns full devil man and sports that huge erection throughout the school, but even seeing his crush slash childhood friend. Uh, like start to engage in these uh, gravure type of stuff. Like there's a lot of a bit of jealousy that comes through there, and a lot of that empathy, that hyper empathy that he's known for, mm. sort of bleeds through. And I feel like even though there's not a lot of eroticism throughout some of those parts, there's still a lot of ch- sexually charged energy that we see in that drama. And I think it's, it's also how do we define something as being avant-garde or art house or being an art film as opposed to or being an art series even as opposed to you know even though i think devil man has that level of surreality and and transgression and artistry behind it i think it's i i think it's not necessarily an art series and that's not to say it's a bad series or to say that it's not worthy of discussion or critique or to not or to say it's even not art it's just it, it's like say it's a different genre almost compared yeah. to yeah, something like belladonna I mean, even compared to the other two films in the, the Anime-Rama trilogy, Belladonna, it's almost like, why is this film with these other two? These two are, you know, sort of, you know, grindhouse anime, and then you have Belladonna, which is arthouse anime. Adding on to how sexuality is viewed within anime today, on top of it being kind of juvenile, I think the only real evolution that's happened, and this evolution, even by my standards, is probably like 10 years old, is where there's slightly more this finally starting to be more of let's not just do the male gaze let's do uh gaze for the females uh, franchises like free or yuri on ice which at this point are pretty old um but that's starting to or stuff like idol idol shows um which aren't inherently sexual but i just that there's a, there's a show for females and members of the LGBTQ community to have something for them to gaze over. And I think even though that's that's growing and that's certainly becoming a thing, like I've even seen just this sort of explosion. You know, people are starting to sort of market towards the Fujoji sector sector and. Uh, because LGBT rights in Japan have become are are becoming more visible in many ways. There's actually a very wonderful documentary called Queer Japan that's just come out. So you know, check that out too while you're at it. Um, even though we're getting that, I still think the anime industry is is 
catering mostly towards men, like 80% of the time, maybe 90%. And even then, the question that many sort of feminists would say is, why should there be any gays at all? Like, why does it have to... Why why does why does equality have to be we can look at men in the same way? Why can't equality be we view this in this way instead of that way? And that's... I, I don't know how I feel about that. I kind of agree with it. But I'm also at the same time like, you know, I will settle for Uriel Nice being part of, you know, having a female gaze. Um, and some people say there is no such thing as a female gaze. It, it does not exist. And then there are some people, such as, as I've said, the, the filmmaker... Anna Biller, who I mentioned at the top of the show, she, you know, disagrees and says, no, there is a female gaze, and I'm trying to find it, and I'm trying to define it, and, and put it out into the public consciousness. Um, and when I think of anime, though, I think that the otaku culture, though there ha- I've been reading the book Little Boy, which is a, uh, which is basically about the last exhibition of super flat art by Takashi Murakami, and there's a series of essays in it, and a, a variety of artists being profiled, and there are many women who are writing these essays and being profiled as artists and talking about you know their con- their contributions to otaku culture and to this art, and I feel like even though that has always been there, there have always been otaku women and queer otaku. Uh, they've been kind of sidelined and ignored, and their histories have been erased. And so, so much of the industry now, as it has become this sort of Ouroboros of otaku culture of you know constant consumption of the same regurgitated material. Um, that they're being left out and that there is no room for something like Belladonna or even, like, what if there were to be a queer version of Belladonna? Could it exist? I don't think in the current climate it could. Um, Mm. So I think that's certainly a way of looking at it. And I I really feel like even though people are like, oh yeah, now we we can lewd men now. I'm like, no, that was never the point here. This was never what we, what to me we should have been aiming for, but I guess if I guess one must take one's victories where you can find them. I think the closest we got to a queer Belladonna would be Devilman Crybaby. While not stylistically similar, I feel like they both have this main character that goes through way too much stuff than they signed up for. They both handle it in the best possible way they could but they are kind of forced by the people around them who desire them in some way or another to make these hard choices. And they see a lot of pain, a lot of suffering in the people around them in that process. Mm. (laughs) And uh, it's both thanks to Satan in both works. Satan is the, it's present. Poor the devil takes a pleasing shape. (laughs) (laughs) I do have one last uh, kind of question that's kind of heavy is with uh, Belladonna of Sadness uses sexual violence as part of its narrative. Um, sexual violence, I think, does occur within modern anime. You could look at the uh, Duraro uh, reboot, uh, remake reboot that happened uh, this just this past year. Uh, there is an episode where you see a one of the characters, not the main characters, but a female character that they meet uh, gets sexually assaulted. Or in uh, this is a little bit older, but the new Berserk movies, the final third movie is just a very graphic uh, sexual assault that happens, and I think it's a it's a complicated issue of just how do you handle uh, sexual violence. Some people feel that uh, scenes such as sexual assault and rape shouldn't be included in narratives. 
Uh, I don't know where you guys stand on that. I I think scenes like that should, if you're going to put them in there, they should have a purpose and not just be there to be there. Because I think that is uh, very crude and cruel just to put that in there if you have no purpose at all. Whereas I would, whereas I think um, solely you've pretty well illustrated the sexual assault and rape scenes that happen in Belladonna of Sadness have a point. But I, I think in modern animes, um, it's there to be there to get you emotionally charged. As bad as it is to have a, a sexual assault scene for titillation, it is almost as bad to have it as a cheap emotional charge. Like, it's similar to fridging women in comics, you know? Oh, I've killed your girlfriend, therefore it, the stakes have been raised. It's, it's, it's easy to do that, and I think when a woman... Boy, you know, is the is the author of the text, whatever that text may be, made a book, a film, an anime, a series, whatever. If it is a woman in the helm or a woman who has experienced that, I think, th- I mean, this film was mostly made by men, and I still think it handles it very well. Personally, I, there are people who disagree with me. This this movie is very controversial, and I I think that being controversial also does not keep it from being about there are many people who I think now in the age we live in where they would say Belladonna has not one but two scenes where sexual assault occurs it is a bad movie we should ban it and we should never talk about it and I think that's absolutely wrong this is a brilliant film it should be talked about and there are feminists who talk about this movie and there are scholars who talk about this movie um and I think the difference is how it's done and how it's framed and how it's done in the narrative. This is part of the story. It is not the main focus, but it is part of Jean's degradation as a woman. She is used by the society and by the ruler of that society. And her power stems from the depths of the depravity that she has to face. It is not done for the cheap emotional charge of, this is bad, therefore you should feel bad, and it's not done for the male audience to to find some sort of salacious satisfaction from it. And I think that's what makes the difference, and I think that's what we're not seeing here now, because I do not want to live in a world where we cannot tell a woman creator, you are allowed to express your trauma or your experience in art. You cannot do this because it makes people uncomfortable. I don't think I would want to live in such a world. But I also do not like the world we live in now where we see sexual violence as, one, a cheap way to get someone to care about a character, or even worse, as we, and I see this very frequently in the, in the community, it is a source of titillation. Unwanted, unconsensual view of women's bodies and media, the, 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 the panty shot, the, the, the groping. I, I don't, I think we need to move past that. It's, it's so juvenile, and sometimes I really just wish I could just go and get on my little soapbox and say, I wish all of you would just grow up. This is why none of you will ever have actual relationships, is because you live in this fantasy world where you think that people's bodies are for your consumption only, and that they're not autonomous beings of their own. Or automatopoeia beings, as some people would pronounce it. Apparently, <laughs> I had to lighten it up. I got kind of, I got, it got kind of dark there. Again, sex is a very messy subject, and it's very easy to just put everything into these buckets of this is this is good views on sex, and this is bad views on sex, and it's uh, it's it's a little too messy to put in those black and white buckets. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, as a and again, in a podcast here of cis uh, males, that it's a little weird for me to be talking about that. And I understand 
Uh, I, I completely agree, though, that if it is just used as a plot device, that it's lazy and it's just kind of cashing in on a very, you know, quote unquote, you know, bad, awful thing. And this is a bad, awful thing we're using for character reasons. Uh, but I agree with Sully that this is a thing that happens, that has happened, and unfortunately will continue to happen. And that if we do not allow these victims to express this in some way, uh, then I, I think that's denying art. I think a lot of art is suffering, and not that anybody should suffer for the sake of such art. But if it's a human experience, uh, you know, unfortunately... And if if it's a situation like this where it has to be, you know, sublimated in some way and in in the text, whether it be actual text or a movie, then uh, I think that is very much a valid place for it. And there is a very much a valid place for tough subjects like this. I don't think they should be erased. But uh, like Sully said, I, I feel like there is a disconnect between exploring these tough subjects and these, you know, these subjects that are parallel to more titillating sort of aspects and crossing that bridge into actually, you know, being pornographic. Mm. So to kind of key off what, what you said there at the end, I, I feel like, uh, I mean, it's, it, like I said, it's a, it's not just an easy, easy, you know, yes. And this like, yes, actual sexual assault is bad, but there are time and places to share these stories and for, you know, both victims and people that aren't victims to read about it and, sort of share in this this disgust and you know, these these situations um i mean even as someone myself that has not been the victim of sexual assault seeing movies like this and seeing it depicted and you know in other media where it's it's uh is depicted as such is it's it's very disgusting to watch and i feel like that's the emotion that is these kind of things are supposed to dredge up mm. this I guess this emotion of disgust is tied very close to like sexual urges that is supposed to make you like, question those and question how you see the these sort of things. Yeah, I I think sexual violence can't be when it comes to a, a narrative. It can't be put in a box of it, uh, yes, it should be in there all the time or no, it should be yeah. never shown. It has to be there on a purpose and for and for its narrative and i think belladonna of sadness reflecting on it and hearing solely i think you brilliantly explaining it i think um belladonna of sadness uses sexual assault uh as part of its narrative for the right reasons and but i also understand for people who have gone through that and it's it does feel weird as it's this white male talking about this but it, for people who have gone through that, I understand it's a traumatic experience. And if you if you don't like it in the in your media, I completely understand it and why you would why you wouldn't want to go through that and and see that in your media. So, oh yeah, for sure. Like I think uh, you know, giving that trigger warning at the at the beginning of this podcast is there the people they just can't do it. They just won't do it, and that's completely understandable. So, do we have any other topics to go on with this? We got really dark there again for a minute. Well, I mean, I think the movie itself can be very dark. So, that's, I think it's a very good discussion. I think we've kind of wrapped it up there. Yeah. Uh, I guess, as usual, we can close off sort of the discussion of the movie with what our our one iconic scene, our one most memorable scene. Uh, so, Sully, I think you mentioned yours earlier, but I forgot already. What was your one iconic scene of this movie? Of this movie. 
I think the moment when you see Jeanne in her the form of this sort of black stag, and then she sort of morphs into the black robe with the horn. She looks a bit like Maleficent almost. Um, I think that, and she's looking down on the villagers and the noblewoman. I think that that was sort of like this, and it's the it's. I think they sort of use that scene for the Japanese poster too. I think that was the scene that really stands out to me. If not that, then I would say. Definitely the first scene with the with the phallic imp. That one that one kind of has lingered in my mind. That that's a really good one. I think her sitting there as that beast, that black beast, was a uh, very visually stunning. Uh, I think the scene following that, with just the weird, the weird orgy, it also kind of stands out to me uh, very very vividly. But I think overall, it's just the entire first half of the movie and. You know, later, but it kind of diminishes in, in quantity later. But just the sheer amount of those those, those illustrations, the, the watercolor, the watercolors present throughout, the very simple lines that the choice of colors juxtapose the lack of colors, and you definitely notice that. That creates these scenes that I just have not seen in any other anime. Uh, to be fair, you see these kind of often in in picture books, maybe fairy tale stories. Uh, but just nothing in an anime is just so uh, so unique, I feel like, even, what, 40-something years later. I think for me, well, this isn't a visually stunning scene, it, it just it sticks in my mind too much of just uh, when Belladonna is being chased by the... Uh, not being chased, but she's, she's banging on her house on her door where her husband's on the other yeah. side just like please let me in i'm going to get hurt i need to get away please help me and he's drowning in his own sorrow uh that scene just it it really stuck with me yeah no there's a lot of sense of betrayal there i feel like uh, i couldn't quite get and i think this is maybe up to the audience's interpretation. Like, was he holding the door closed intentionally, or was he so passed out drunk that he had no clue what was going on? Mm. I can't remember the scene well enough, so I can't answer that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's something that kind of stuck with me. I think that it, I agree with Bill in that way, that was it intentional, or was he just so out of it? And honestly, I feel like either one of those could possibly be true uh, mm. uh, in, that, in, in that interpretation. Kind of as our wrap-up, I think, um, Sully, you are com- you're exactly right in that this film has multiple layers to it in its narrative of examining the patriarchy, ex- examining the power dynamics, in examining the power dynamic of sex. Uh, you could look at it through a religious point of view, if you, if you want to. Uh, and I think on top of that, just the icing on the cake is the uh, the vi- the beautiful visuals that uh, kind of entrance you as you watch um, this transformation from uh, woman to Wiccan. Well, before we go into uh, kind of wrapping up here with our with our with our social media and our Patreon and all that, uh, I just want to point out that the film is very readily, more readily available than I thought it was, because uh, apparently, Bill, you watched this on Amazon Prime? It's on Amazon Prime, of all places. I, I was shocked as you are that it was there. <laughs> and if you're like me, and you uh, you don't trust Amazon, like, at all, 
Uh, you can also find this at Arbelos Films. It was put out by Cinelicious Pictures, but they uh, their distribution is now handled by handled by Arbelos. That is A R B L A R B E L O S films.com and if you go there you can actually buy the blu-ray for $29 which is actually pretty good you know for a for a restored remastered version of this film it comes with an uh, interview with the director and the art director and the composer um, a 16 page booklet and all the trailers and they also have like a, a uh, one sheet style poster for the film Ooh. for sale as well it's not the original oh. Japanese it's one that they've uh, they've created for themselves, but it's still beautiful and it's twenty bucks. So you know, go and get yourself something nice. This is also the same distributor who does uh, *Funeral Parade of Roses*. So if you went to my Japanese film panel um, at all at Animazement, you know uh, that was the film that I like forced people to watch, and they also distribute that movie for the same price. So you know, go there, get *Belladonna of Sadness* on Blu-ray, and get *Funeral Parade of Roses*. Just go full Japanese art house and get the poster so that you too can subject all your friends to your taste. <laughs> If you uh, if you like what we're doing, we have started a Patreon. We we did it, everybody. Internet law has happened. We finally succumbed to consumerism. <laughs> uh, as 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 one uh, internet law I like to say is eventually, if you're doing something on the internet, whether that be a podcast or YouTube, you must start a Patreon. It is internet law. Uh, but yeah, our Patreon just started up where um, you can come support us. It'll help us with uh, the cost of doing this podcast and uh, help us get to more conventions. So uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, please go over there and check our reward tiers. Uh, I think uh, we're going to be doing uh, shout-outs pretty soon. I have a shout-out, actually. So uh, we're close to my time at the retail job I'm at. We had a photo center from Fujifilm, and the guy came out to check the photo center, and his name was CJ, and we got into a really great discussion about anime, and he's like, I'm going to listen to your podcast. So I said, I'm going to give you a shout-out. And even though this is the very end of this episode, don't know if he'll hear it, but CJ from Fujifilm, this is for you. Thank you for listening, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know, you could have been lying awesome. to Awesome. Well, if you don't like Patreon, we also have a Ko-Fi that you can... Uh... Give us a couple bucks and uh, whatever you can give, if if you can give, uh, we would really appreciate it. Now, uh, gentlemen, uh, what are your social media handles? So mine, uh, as usual, is Reverend underscore Tobias. Uh, that is my Twitter. You get me up there. Uh, on Facebook, uh, I mostly hang out in the Third Impact Anime Community group. So if uh, you're more of a Facebook addict, we have a group, just Third Impact Anime Community. You can join there, and we basically post links to relevant news and kind of talk about various anime-related subjects. So feel free to hit us up there if Facebook is more your speed compared to Twitter. You can find me at WB Foreman, Foreman as an F-O-R-E-M-A-N 999 at Twitter, where you'll mostly see me retweeting and loving uh, Lupin fan art and uh, all my things about Lupin the Third, my my greatest love, and all my other whatever is making me tick anime wise and video game wise on Twitter. Uh, I would also 
like you to go check out our website, www.thirdimpactanime.com, where we write occasional articles. We don't have anything going on for the season currently. I might write something. I have some I have some ideas in the works. But um, Bless you, Bill. Bless <laughs> you for keeping the blog alive. <laughs> hey, I, I, I love writing. Even though I'm horrible with grammar and spelling, uh, I, I love writing it. Uh, the last thing I wrote, it's a little dated, but I think it's still fun, is uh, go check out my observations from this year's E3 where I talk about how Netflix is invading the gaming space with everything going to streaming uh, and all my other wild observations. And you can find me at Calvacun, that is C-A-L-V-A underscore K-U-N on Twitter. If you find a picture of a beautiful young man with a Duranjo mask on, that's me. Um, I'm also thinking about making, is it, is it Kitsu or Kitsune? The, the anime, it's, it's like the Kitsune. new version of my anime list that everyone's going. I think I might do that because I hated my anime list with a burning passion and everyone was on there. I never kept up. Maybe it'll... Maybe that'll be something I actually keep up. And I'm hoping, like I said, I'm going to be reading Witch Hat Atelier, the new manga that has come out. And I'm going to force myself to write a review a review of the first volume because I really should like write more as someone who wants to, to do writing or, or be an editor professionally. So, like, uh, yeah, I do mostly personal writing. So I, I've neglected my duties on the site. But much like Bill, hopefully... You know, if I say it here on the podcast, it'll, they'll force me to do it. Join me, Sully, in the writing corner. Join me. That sounds so weird and dark. <laughs> <laughs> one of us. One of us. <laughs> one of us. Are you Satan? <laughs> and uh, as usual, you can check out more Third Impact Musings we mentioned on the website. Uh, Bill mentioned the Patreon, but I don't, I don't remember you giving the URL. Uh, so in case he didn't, in case I'm forgetting, and oh. in case you need to hear it again anyway... It is patreon.com slash third impact anime. And we are also on coffee. That is ko fi.com slash third impact anime. So whether or not you want to regularly give us money once a month or buy us, or really buy Austin a coffee, because let's be honest, he's the one getting this money, uh, you can do so either way. But uh, likewise, you can find this podcast uh, either through our website, thirdimpactanime.com, or on Podbean as well. Search for Third Impact Anime. You have to give us the full title, but in the most dramatic way. La sorcière, comme si me no belle donna.